Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 44 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. On this episode, we are going to be diving deep into the yoga teacher's scope of practice. So scope of practice can be defined as the limit of your knowledge, skills, and experience, and it's made up of the activities that you carry out within your professional role. So we're going to be talking about what yoga teachers are qualified to teach. And when we sometimes see yoga teachers stepping outside of that expertise. Generally speaking, we think of yoga teachers teaching a combination of yoga specific practices like asana, pranayama, meditation, and maybe also yoga philosophy as well. But we also sometimes see yoga teachers taking on other roles like addressing their students pain and injuries consulting with students about psychological issues like anxiety, stress, and depression, correcting students' posture, offering nutritional advice, and just general advice about students' health. So we're going to talk about whether some or all or none of these practices fall into a yoga teacher's scope of practice. Um, and what's important to point out before we dive into this is that this is different from medical fields that are more uh, tightly regulated because yoga is not regulated. There's no licensure involved. There's no governing authority that sets out this official legal scope of practice for the yoga teacher. Uh, some might point to yoga Alliance, but that is just a registry. It's not a government appointed regulatory body. So the discussion that we're going to have today is really just our opinions. And of course, as we always do, we're going to do our best to come at this from an evidence-based lens, uh, but ultimately a yoga teacher's scope of practice is subject to one's interpretation. Um, you can decide for yourself what you think. One other thing to point out is that some yoga teachers may also have licensure as a healthcare practitioner, and that licensure would allow them to have a different scope of practice than a yoga teacher who's not a healthcare practitioner. So the conversation for today is really going to be focused on people who are just yoga teachers. To have this conversation with us today, we have invited on a very special guest. And that guest is named Catherine Wilkinson. She is the founder of Wellness Connection Yoga School in Cape Town, South Africa, where they run 200 hour and 500 hour yoga teacher trainings. And we really admire Catherine because she is the epitome of an evidence-based practitioner, in our opinion. Uh, we've been big fans of her work and her teachings for a long time. 
She has also been practicing yoga for a long time. She's been practicing for 25 years. She's been teaching for 15 years. And we just knew that she would be the perfect person to have this conversation with because she trains so many yoga teachers and she sees their questions and their confusions around this issue. So Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Catherine, we're so happy to have you here. I feel like we've been connected with you and friends with you like through the online world for years now. And like Travis said, we've both been such admirers of um, of your work and the yoga teacher trainings that you run and just how much you really strive to be as evidence-based or as science-based as possible um, in your in what you offer and what you teach. So it's just really amazing to get to sit down with you and like have a conversation. It's just really special. So we're so happy to have you here. And we're definitely gonna dive into this scope of practice, this big meaty topic that Travis just introduced. But before we kind of get there, we thought it might be nice just to ask you a bit about kind of your own yoga history and background. And as someone who Travis mentioned has been in the yoga community for quite some time now, I'm sure you just also have some interesting observations on, you know, maybe the way that you had seen the way things used to be and maybe things, how they've evolved and just how the yoga world may seem a little different today from when you first began. So we were wondering if you could just maybe let us know like what first got you into yoga when you first started and maybe a little bit about kind of like your earlier yoga experience. Okay, that's uh, I bore. I mean, I really bore all my 200 hour and 500 hour students with this story. So if you're listening, I apologize um, to the story. So I started yoga a long time ago. Um, it might even be over 25 years now. Um, and I started yoga when there was no yoga really, as I think the majority of people know of yoga today there was no yoga in gyms there was no yoga in studios there was no internet can you imagine okay there was i i don't want to maybe i'm exaggerating but i'm not sure if they were dvds i think it might have been vhs i'm really really talking a long time ago so the whole world was completely different yoga wise it was traditional yoga and i'm talking I lived in London most of my life. Um, it was traditional, what I would term as traditional yoga, you know, um, Shivananda yoga. There was an odd Iyengar studio around. And I don't even think in London at that stage there was Ashtanga at all. Wow. So it was a completely and utterly different world to how amazing it is now with just so many different fields of yoga and yoga online and all that we know. I could see that. And, um, and back then it was just, people were going to like these, just these very few yoga studios, not even taking yoga in gyms, maybe the odd, like, um, VHS videotape that someone might like buy at the store and then practice at home. Exactly. I had a book by David Swenson. That's when I started getting into Ashtanga yoga. It was a book and I show it to us. It's a book with him in a speedo on the, <laughs> a, a, 
on the front cover in Warrior 2. I swear, it's a real proper Ashtanga. I, Jenny, I think you did Ashtanga as well. It, I mean, that's yes. it's lucky in the book, he's got slightly longer cycling shorts on. But on, <laughs> on the front cover, he's really got a, what we call in England and South Africa, a speedo, really short, you know, swimming. And so that's how I learned to do Sun salutations, jumping was from the book when he broke it down. So yes, I think uh, long story short, it was a really long time ago. That's so funny. I don't know if uh, you know, but several years ago, like in my earlier yoga history, I owned a yoga store in Santa Barbara and it was called Drishti the Gaze. And we had a huge book selection. So I was really familiar with like all the core yoga books and we totally sold David's. We, I remember we reordered that book so many times. We had a lot of people. It's like, at least our version, it was spiral bound and he was fully in the speedo. Yes. Brilliant. I know that book really well. I need to see this book. Brilliant. Thomas, we're going to have to get a copy. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Wow. Well, that's so cool to hear about your, you know, what, what things were like and how you um, experienced yoga back then. So it sounds like you developed uh, a regular practice, like through those means, through the David Swenson book and um, maybe the Shivananda Studios, Iyengar, just kind of putting things together. Uh, at some point you decided to open your own yoga school. And how did that, how did that happen? That's right. I got really lucky. I lived in London most of my life and then I moved to Cape Town because it's the most beautiful city in the world. And um, I started teaching, but years after I trained as a teacher and I started teaching ad hoc here and there and I got quite a nice following. Um, I wasn't at all evidence-based then, not at all. <laughs> yeah. I, not, I, none of us were. I yeah. didn't know what it meant, I don't think, then. Um, right. I did in health sciences way, but not in a yoga way. And a couple of my students begged me, um, Mandy Hewlett uh, begged me, she runs a big studio now, to, to do a teacher training. And I said, no way. <laughs> no, it's too much work. And they begged and begged and begged. And then I thought, oh, you know, why not? I've had, I didn't have very good teacher trainings. Um, and I thought I, maybe I can do it better. And that's really how I started. I had a studio before with some classes, but then that's how I started doing yoga teacher trainings, which is only a couple of years after having a studio. And that's where all the evidence-based yoga things started to show themselves to me. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder if um, I wonder if it has anything to do with that process of sometimes when we set out to teach something. I just know this has been my personal experience. When you set out to teach something, then you then you start to realize where your knowledge gaps are and what you don't actually know, and uh, maybe that sparks further research. And then I don't know. I wonder if that was part of it for you that once you started to teach, maybe that's what tapped you into a more like how you maybe hadn't been as evidence-based as you are now, like maybe that was part of your shift was starting to teach other teachers? Com completely. And I have a health sciences background and specifically in nutrition. And so I, I used to live in the British Library, which is, you know, has every, all the medical journals. And I was able to do research on that basis. But I don't think it ever occurred to me that yoga would need research or that there was any research to be had 
in the yoga field. You know, I really didn't connect the two until I started doing a little bit of anatomy in terms of teaching, like you say, and then, then starting to look things up on a health sciences basis that wasn't linked to yoga, say things like back pain and look at, and then going, wait, hang on a second, I'm hearing these messages out there. And actually this is what the research is saying. And then putting the two together. And I think that's where the idea of this sort of evidence-based teacher trainings came from was from my, experiences doing health science research and then matching it to the different fields in yoga um movement science based and things like that so yes i i i didn't it didn't even occur to me that yoga could have this evidence based um i suppose uh base you know it, yeah mm -hmm. so definitely you were the original yoga meets movement science I don't know about that. I spent, I mean, I, the stories I could tell you, which I won't tell you now, but I mean, I spent, I'm not exaggerating. I went on a holiday skiing in, in Switzerland and I spent eight out of the 10 days trying to find out why teacher said that your arm must be in external rotation when you take it over your head because I couldn't find the reason. And my friends and my husband are like, get out of the flat, come and ski. And, and I mean, so I went down this dark tunnel. I mean, it was a dark, good tunnel with the light at the end, but it was like, I mean, it really was all the things that I've been taught and heard trying to find out what the root was and there was nothing about yoga at all you know in, in terms of so, so yes so <laughs> that a lot of that happened putting the trainings together and still does i love that story that's it's really <laughs> true i have witnesses <laughs> <laughs> i love that so much and i can so relate to like when when you have some sort of question come up especially I think we yoga geeks can just kind of relate on this, but just like you said, something about like, well, do we need to consciously externally rotate the arm when it's overhead? Is that important and why? It can take us down such a rabbit hole. And I love that you admitted that it took you on an eight day rabbit hole when you should have been skiing. That's, you are perfect for this. Yeah, so that's that. And, and that in all fairness, that's really what keeps me doing the trainings is, is, is just this constant check, check, dig, keep up to date, listening to you, both of you. Yes. And learning so much as well. That is amazing to hear. And thank you for reminding us about your health science background, because actually when I was looking up what we were going to say for your bio, I remember seeing that and making a mental note, like, oh, we need to say that. And then I forgot. So we didn't actually say that in the introduction, but I oh, believe no you yeah, so you, it's just so interesting to think of how someone can be, like have a full on research background in a different field and maybe not necessarily like see the relevance of that type of looking into things for something like yoga. Maybe because just we tend to be taught the yoga practices we're taught it, maybe we just take it for granted. We're just like, this is yoga, but it's such an eye opening process. To, I love how you describe that, how you realize like, well, actually there, there is research on the human body and on movement and we can actually like start to apply this. Right. Exactly. And at the time I put the trainings together, I actually was doing Iyengar yoga. I've gone from <laughs> different styles, to, you know, everything and, but big into Iyengar yoga and, and you know how alignment driven Iyengar yoga is. And, th and, and I mm -hmm. think in my head, I got confused from this emphasis on alignment that they were doing. And I got it confused with being safe, that if, you know, you were doing a yes. headstand and 
one of your arms is slightly, you know, lifted higher than the other, your scapula a little bit higher. That was inherently dangerous. And so I had lots of that information, you know, as to go to like two hours advanced Iyengar classes. I mean, you have to align your little finger. So it, so I think I, yeah. I mean, you really do. It's like, what, you know, lift this kidney and that, you know, and it, I mean, your whole mind is like, whoa, what's going on? And, and I mean, I loved it. I had a fantastic teacher, but it, I think I got confused by, you know, with yeah. these constant alignment cues that they were to do with being safe and being yeah. that I wouldn't injure. And I, you know, and I can't really remember if my teacher then said, and I don't think she did. I don't think she said you have to do that to protect your neck in headstand, for example. I think she mm -hmm. just said that bit skew, make it straight. It was for a simple. <laughs> You know, I don't think there was a language in the Iyengar field around safety as much as there was in the vinyasa flow world, which is what I was also doing on the side and trained in, again, another style. And there was much more of a message there, make sure, you know, you do this for safety. So I think I was, my mind was very full of instruction from both of those worlds and not really thinking about, well, hang on a sec, why in the Iyengar world is it just asymmetry there or symmetry that they are after? And in the Vinyasa flow world, is that different instructions? Because they're sort of the same, <laughs> but I think maybe for different reasons. I don't know what Iyengar is like now, you know. But yes, so that's when I started to really notice, hang on, what are people saying here in, in different yoga styles as well? Right across styles and you mentioned already your experience with Iyengar, um, Ashtanga and even Vinyasa flow styles and um, I know we're about to dive into actually scope of practice but I just had one other question for you about your background just kind of filling that out a bit is I know you've met you told me in some of our conversations that you've also and I think this was like quite a few years ago but you would go on like the yoga journal conference circuits like you would go to Yo, like a, it's kind of like a different, like a different era, maybe in the yoga world. I don't think Yoga Journal really does these big conferences anymore, but and maybe I'm wrong about that. But from my memory, it was like they would, there'd be a city like Estes Park, Colorado, and is in my mind as one that they would always do. And then they would invite all these big, super famous yoga teachers to these, these um, conferences. And then they would, you know, just like a conference in another field that would just be, they'd give presentations all throughout the day. As an attendee, you would go to the classes or the workshops that you'd want to go to and you just get little bits little bite-sized experiences with these different like famous yoga teachers um am i right that you at least went to one yoga journal conference maybe quite a few not just yoga journal but quite a few conferences in the states but because we don't really get that in the uk and, and especially back then when you didn't really get workshops so i used to go to the states i really love the states by the way um i actually got yeah. married in the states so I, yeah I've been to the states a lot of times um and i used to go to if there was a conference when I mean near, near-ish, like a two-hour plane journey from where I was going in the States, then I would go. So, yes, I've seen a lot of different people over there. And I think the last conference I went to was the Northwest, is it the Northwest oh, yes. Conference in Seattle, I think? Yes. They hold a big conference there. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I can't remember all the names, but um, Mazzy Ezrati, Amy Ippolito, 
Jason Crandall, Tiffany Craigshank, uh, the Jivan Mukti people, uh, and lots of lots of uh, Catherine Budig, I think, when she was around. Um, so I used to go, um, and uh, as I got more evidence based, I used to get more and more shocked by what people. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you can't. And obviously, going to conferences, the Northwest being one of them, not that it was the conferences for, but going from teacher to teacher to teacher for two hour workshops, you know, they're all in those little slots, and being taught the same thing, handstand in particular, was one, and being taught absolutely, totally differently by teachers all around safety and alignment cueing. Like, uh, without naming names, things like your your scapula must be depressed, drawn down your back in in handstand and really, really, and I was like, what? I'm very confused that people don't understand this. You know, it, yeah, so it was a big eye opener and a big, it, the yoga journey for me in terms of teachers has been quite an interesting journey right from the shivananda teachers in the beginning to to you now jenny it's true yes but it's really eye-opening experience and definitely you know i suppose everybody's yoga journey changes depending on what knowledge they gain on the way movement practices they like i love strength-based stuff as you know and strength for yoga that kind of thing so it, you know things have i've directed in a different way because of that uh, and wanting things to be as evidence-based as possible so yes thank you so much for speaking to your experience around that that i think that really helps set like a good background for yeah like what you've seen in the yoga world and over time and how you've evolved personally and um before I ask you this question about scope of practice. I just remembered one more important thing I need to say, which is that when I, when I first discovered you on social media, uh, like found your Instagram account, what I, I don't think you say this anymore in your Instagram bio, but what you said back then was that you learned to handstand press at age, and I think it might have been 52, something like that. But it was oh. one of the one of the things that stood out about you is that you like taught yourself, like you learn and you train and you got a handstand press, which that's a really hard thing to do in case listeners don't know, place your hands on the floor and just float your legs up into handstand rather than like kicking up or jumping up. And it's a very impressive feat. And you, Catherine, at beyond the age of 50, I don't remember the exact age, but you learned to do like, that's the age where you learned to do a handstand press. So I think that's super cool. Mm, I think maybe insane is the word more than super cool. I mean, it's like, I was like in, in, in England, we'd say barking mad. I was like a barking mad person for, I think it was two and a half years. It took me to learn that stupid thing. <laughs> I, I can attest to this because I met you shortly after you learned it and you were just like, you were practicing hours, like just you refuse, you refused to not learn it right you were like no matter how hard it was going to be you were going to do it and then you just to maintain it you also had to keep yeah. practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing and I, yeah i was just i admired i was like you know it's hard for anybody to learn I, like i've dabbled in it i don't do it nearly as nice as you um but it, it's like so so it's hard for anybody to learn and then for someone who's a woman and in her 50s right like 
most people would call you crazy. They would just be like, that's not possible. <laughs> and, and it was impossible until you, you did it, right? Yeah. Uh, which was just a, amazing, amazing, amazing. And I haven't done, I don't, I think last year was the last time I did it because I just haven't, I'm not in that space for putting that, because that's all you do. There's nothing else. <laughs> and then no, I there's no time to do anything else because you know, it takes so many hours to practice that. Hours and hours and hours. But thank you. Yes, it, I was very glad I achieved it. And I maybe yeah. one day I'll go back to it again. I don't know. It, but I have, it's a lot of dedication, put it like that. That makes so much sense. But um, yeah, anyway, I'm just very impressed by you for many reasons. And that's one of them. Oh, uh, yes. So maybe shifting our focus a little more to this uh, scope of a yoga teacher, um, yoga teacher scope of practice. I guess maybe our first question for you about this is, could you, Catherine, could you maybe tell us what you you formerly thought that a yoga teacher scope of practice was like maybe back in some of the days where you were describing like your earlier time in the yoga world and then maybe we could contrast that with what you what your opinion is on a yoga teacher scope of practice today pre-dvd and post-dvd <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny and true <laughs> right exactly uh, i like that it's so funny i think um i mean in the very early days, I there was just nothing. They, I, that, that's what I said. I hadn't thought about that until I was chatting now. That with the traditional, I keep using that word, but Shibananda, Iyengar, Ashtanga, there really wasn't any kind of scope, queuing around scope of practice, just people like pulling you into poses and lying on top <laughs> of you and doing oh, that. I mean, it really was like that. Literally, I'm sure literally yeah. It really mm -hmm. was. So it's like, you're in a forward bend, I'm now going to lie on you. And I liked yeah. it. <laughs> just weird. I, I did too. I did too. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was just like, get on with it. It was just, you know, they had a load of nonsense as well, of course, you know, in terms of queuing, but it was, uh, sorry, I'm putting all that, but it, it was just like, do the poses. And if you can't just keep doing them and then hopefully you'll get there. So there was no, I had no thought about it, but it was when I got into, um, vinyasa flow and then started teaching um from the, when i was practicing iyengar and vinyasa flow and they started teaching and i really believed that i had to ask my classes if they had before the class if they had any injuries or i used to say something like does anybody have any injuries or any problems that they wish to share or it we don't really use the word issues here is you know it's more pro and then and everybody would be standing looking at me and I would ask this quite blunt question because every other yoga teacher did. And right. so I'd ask it and then some people would put their hands up and say, I've got X, I've got this. And then I would not really say anything terribly helpful and maybe keep an eye on them for, you know, depending on what they had. I used to get people to fill in forms um, not just, you know, get this signed off by your medical um, practitioner, but do you have any medical problems? Make a list. And then I, I'd get the form before the class and not read it. And they read it after the class. <laughs> so I don't think it was very, whatever I was doing, it was just something I felt like I had to do, that I had to keep people that by asking that question and then being able to keep an eye on that person with a disc herniation that somehow I was keeping them safe. 
And I kind of think I felt like I knew about injuries and I really didn't know anything at all. Um, I, I mean, not at all. Like when I think of the things I used to advise people to do. So I really come from that right at the beginning of teaching that point of view of, you know, asking about injuries, keeping people safe. And then sometimes even sort of go, well, I think, you know, you've got a bit of a shoulder issue. It's definitely a rotator cuff issue. (laughs) And do these exercises, you know, your external. I mean, I really did do that right in the beginning. So 14, 15 years ago, that's, that's Mm -hmm. what I used to do. And then I started putting the trainings together. And then I, then I was like, Oh, my word, Catherine, you know, nothing about what is going on. You know what it's like. It's like, you you don't know, like you're asking, you diagnosing somebody with a rotator cuff injury. It's like, you know, nothing how, you know, that's just ridiculous. It took me quite a while. And because of the trainings to get to that point of wait, hang on a second, you know, so, so from there, you know, asking, diagnosing, sometimes treating as well. And then that genuinely, honestly, to now where I try very hard not to do that. (laughs) As we spoke about, you know, because now I don't teach classes, I only do teacher trainings. So there is a little bit of a conversation around injury in our classes in the trainings. But it's slightly different. Yeah. But but definitely a huge, huge change, huge change from when I first started teaching. Yeah. Thank you for um, outlining that. And of course I can relate. And I know many other people can too. And when I think back to some of the things that I thought I was qualified to do in my yoga classes and with my yoga students, like it just, yeah, it's like this, I don't know, naivete or something. And then once you learn more, then you realize exactly as you said, you you begin to realize how much you don't actually know. And you Absolutely. are, um, at least, yeah, I feel like we become humbled. Uh, and then maybe learn to like hone our focus on the areas where maybe we actually are qualified to have expertise. Absolutely. So I think we're, I think we'd love to get back to what you mentioned about um, yoga teachers asking that question at the beginning of class, like, does anyone have an injury? I think, I think we want to get back to that because that's a really good meaty topic to dive into. Uh, but could you maybe, it, do you have like a sense, and I know you just taught scope of practice in one of your yoga teacher trainings just the other day, but do you have a sense of what you would lay out today as far as like what you tell your, te- your teacher trainees? What is their scope of practice, like in simple terms. And of course, this is just your, our, all of our opinion, your opinion. We know there's no official regulatory body, but what do you consider to be within a yoga teacher's scope of practice? I know that's going to launch us into talking, like going more in depth, but just on a summarized level, what are yoga teachers qualified to teach? Yoga. <laughs> that's it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's really simple. It's, uh, you know, the question I said to, the 200 hours um, is, you know, you you coming towards the end of your 200 hours. W- what have you learned on your 200 hours to do right. to Good teach question. yoga? They all said it would not me prompting them and said, so, and what does that, um, what what is that made up of? And they like we put together a class, we put a sequence, we teach and cue the sequence etc that's that we are allowed to teach meditation breath work 
poses and we can offer modifications. And then somebody actually said before that came out, somebody said, when I said, what, you know, what does that mean? What is it, what is it comprised of? They said, it's not comprised of diagnosing or being a medical practitioner. And so it, it, to me, it's quite, it's quite simple. It's you trained on a 200 hour, you put a sequence together, you, you know, this is, we train pose demonstration so you can teach pose cueing, teaching skills, right? We teach you how to do more poses, to look at other people's poses in terms of a movement science perspective, like strength, skill, flexibility, what do they have? What do their range of movement, all of that stuff, put the class together, sorry, not my mic, and then teach the class, be nice, <laughs> warm, and then go home. It's a, so, so to me, it sounds very harsh. Within that, of course, there's subtleties, lots of subtleties, and there's a lot of stuff we can do, not to go into that yet. But you being trained to teach yoga, not to do differential diagnosis on somebody's shoulder pain, you know, it's, <laughs> you know it's, that it, you, you're not qualified to do that. So. Uh, yeah, it's as simple as that for me. And Yoga Alliance is like, there's nothing in there. I even show them what the Yoga Alliance says. And it's not really anything to do with um, what we would look at as scope of practice that even fitness professionals have in most countries. I'm sure, you know, they gen generally have a, a scope of practice got, you know, what you do do and what you don't do, which is prescribed. Yeah rehab you know all of those kind of things and we don't and I've, I've done so many google searches every time i teach it to see what the difference is between what comes up if i ask for fitness professionals scope of practice or even pilates scope of practice although i don't agree with their scope but yoga is <laughs> nothing it's honestly jenny you come up with your scope of practice blog i know google gives I me do. Yeah, but there's there's nothing else. I mean, there's just no there's no nice little form that says do and don't. <laughs> you know, oh there's gosh. just not. That's that is so interesting. And thanks for mentioning that blog post. Yeah, that's something that Travis and I did together. It was this interview project where we once again, kind of in a similar vein to this conversation, we weren't. Um, we realized that there is no official, like, like you just said, there's no set scope, like in a legal sense, but we wanted to get uh, opinions from a wide range of instructors out there on what they thought. And so it was like just an interview uh, series where we asked them all the same question and then they answered and you could just see by comparing their answers, how the opinions can kind of vary. That was like our point with that. We'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Um, it's yeah, kind of in line for sure in line with this conversation, but that's so funny, Catherine, that when you Google scope of yoga teacher scope of practice, that is one of the things that comes up. It's, it's interesting to me too, because as a fitness professional, we have the same issues with what is our scope or, or like you said, Catherine, it's out there, but, but then actually internalizing it and then living it. So we have, we have issues with people understanding what the scope is and and sometimes overstepping it and so i see this from my my perspective and then i i wonder about it with yoga and it's like my goodness we have enough trouble and ours is clearly written out and you know different we have different governing bodies it's a little bit lawless not as lawless as yoga <laughs> but then to say <laughs> yeah. well there's nothing oh my goodness that would be really hard to figure out how to 
fit in and what to do if you, there was nothing telling me, you know, I can do this or I can't. Exactly. I like being called lawless. <laughs> I'm a lawless yoga teacher. It's the Wild West. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, but there is nothing. Well, I mean, not that I've spent hours and hours trying to find it, but I mean, you'd imagine it would come up quickly on a Google image search. Or sure. There is nothing. And I don't think it gets talked about really not that i've never been none of the trainings that i've done bearing in mind i haven't done one for quite a while talk about scope of practice um in in the uk and here um i haven't done a training in in the states yeah in my experience in the trainings that i've done in the in the us i have not um no that has not been brought up for us I, and I did in preparation for this conversation, I did go on the Yoga Alliance website and just review because they do, again, they're not um, a regulatory body. They're just a registry, but they do still outline like their their idea about what scope of practice should be for a yoga teacher. And I know it sounds like you discussed that in um, your teacher trainings as well. But I just noticed uh, uh, maybe I'll just really quickly for the benefit of our audience who may not be familiar, they've got six points. Maybe I'll just read through those really quickly because it might, might be helpful. Um, so what is Yoga Alliance's uh, definition of a yoga teacher scope of practice? Number one, follow the Yoga Alliance code of conduct. Number two, teach yoga, as, as you said, Catherine. Uh, number three, adjust posture or practice with explicit and informed consent. Number four, share yogic philosophy, history, and anatomy. Number five, this is where I feel like there are a lot of questions that could be asked about this. This is where it's, to me, kind of unclear. Advise and teach within permitted scope. But that's all that it, that's all that it says. That's and then the no whole point. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and I, I maybe it's also I think that's also referring to if you have other credentials, you know, like if you're also a physiotherapist uh, or a physical therapist, maybe you can. I that was my a little bit of my impression. I still feel like it's vague. It's like mm -hmm. um, if you're telling yoga teachers what they can do, to me it seems like it would be helpful to outline maybe what they can't do. You know. Um, maybe that helps us, you know, if we see what we're not supposed to do, then it makes, a, in contrast, we can better see what we should. And I just, just to finish off with their scope, Yoga Alliances, there were six. So the number six was maintain relevant credentials. Um, again, I think if you're a yoga teacher and you're also, say, um, a nutritionist or something, you know, then maintain those credentials if you're going to. So, so Catherine... And hearing you talk about this, I feel like you have referenced, and I see this a lot myself, and I know Travis does, you've referenced yoga teachers um, maybe trying to like diagnose or treat or handle students' pain and injury as something that you see quite a bit that I believe that you see as outside a yoga teacher scope of practice because we don't learn how to do that within a yoga teacher training. I'm wondering, are there other, so I think that's a huge one and like a big one to focus on is that. But are there other things you see yoga teachers do on a regular basis that also seem like they're yoga teachers, like not staying within their lane, um, like other ways, like maybe, maybe nutrition advice, maybe helping with um, wanting to help with psychological conditions, things like that. Do you see that as, do you see other examples as well? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement. 
We channel our understanding of movement science into our one-of-a-kind Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at JennyRawlings.com newsletter and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. Like other ways, like maybe, maybe nutrition advice, maybe helping with um, wanting to help with psychological conditions, things like that. Do you see that as, do you see other examples as well? I see all of those things. Um, uh, when we ask that question, you know, about do you, do you, do you ask about injuries and we have a discussion around the kind of physical problems that people might have, then I ask about, you know, what, what do you do if a uh, client starts to cry in a class? To see, what they, and I would say that the vast majority will say they will stop the class, or they will go and sit down with the person and have a conversation, or take the person aside afterwards and find out what is going on and approach it. And, and it's not—it's um, more than just a caring. I mean, it's all coming from the intention of caring. That's what all the yoga teachers are. They're coming from that intention. But it's it's more about what the yoga teacher can offer to help them fix their psychological problem at that particular time or emotional problem at that time. So I see that a lot of belief of that the role of the yoga teacher isn't what I've just said, which is to teach yoga, to do your class and then be warm and friendly and chat. It actually can encompass emotional well-being advice. It can encompass uh, what you should be eating. It can encompass the fact that um, your neck is sore because your posture is not right. And the fact that remember classic things that you're sleeping incorrectly or you're, it's just much bigger than come in and teach yoga. Yes. Yes. Thank you for speaking to those examples because, yeah, I feel, I, I think kind of maybe naming some of these tendencies that we see can also be helpful just for our listeners and kind of getting a little more solidified around some of the the types of ways that we see yoga teachers maybe taking on some roles that are beyond just the role of a yoga teacher. Um, I wonder what you think, Catherine, about like this, talking about um, yoga teachers helping in terms of maybe sort of counseling on emotional well-being and things like that. Do you, uh, do you see, I, I see sometimes like with talk about trauma in the yoga world. Now I know that that's, uh, there's like trauma sensitive yoga, which is one thing like teaching yoga in a, in a context in which we're being sensitive to people who may have trauma and not wanting to um, trigger them or do things that can increase that sensitivity. So that's like one way that we might approach it. But on a, in another sense, I sometimes and I often see something like trauma brought into a yoga class where it's like the class that the teacher is teaching 
can actually help with that trauma or help resolve the trauma or treat the trauma. I feel like I see that come in. Uh, we did a whole podcast episode on polyvagal theory. Do you remember mm -hmm. that, Travis? Which is yeah. often combined with yoga and taught by yoga teachers who are not necessarily like licensed mental health professionals uh, and taught in a way that it's not trauma sensitive. That's different. Like, I feel like that is more evidence based, but it's more like we're using polyvagal theory in yoga so that you can resolve your trauma. I feel like I see that. Is that something that you come across, Catherine, in like what you've experienced in the yoga world? I I come across it more from a um, it, within the yoga trainees themselves, especially on the, not so much 200 hours, but the uh, 300, 500 hours. Uh, wanting to be involved and some of them may be going on to do so wanting to be involved in yoga therapy that kind of you know word, oh, i see trauma thrown about that word a lot in in two different ways um if i go to normal not normal class but like public classes out there not so much that the class is structured around trauma but that a yoga teacher may say to someone or witness people saying that the reason that you are in pain or the reason the classic we know you know that your hips aren't open or that you're there is because you have stored trauma that needs yes. to be released that kind of conversation around um which I always quite, you know, talk to the trainees about and say it's it's not only is it you don't know, um, it, but it's also quite judgmental. You know, it's like well, hips <laughs> aren't open, therefore something is blocked, something is uh, so it's it's emotionally judgmental. I feel to say yeah. things because it's never. A, it's never a positive thing it's a, always a negative you know it's a you are blocked you are storing negative trauma you are so there's that side of the trauma things and then there's trainees that go on to do i don't have many of them but have gone on to do yoga therapy um with the big institute i think it's international yoga therapist and they and that is much more i haven't been to a class taught by a yoga therapist because it's not my thing but that is much more from you know i will teach the class with polyvagal theory in mind and i've looked at their website and gone through a lot of blogs and gone oh, wow this is <laughs> it's no evidence i mean it's it's you know pretty astounding sorry i call it like it is it's a, you know it, it <laughs> I love that you're so. But direct. it really is that you can't say. I mean, it's and and quite serious complaints like depression and you know it, it, psychological issues that are potentially dangerous. You know, to yes, oh yeah. We talk about it a lot on the three hundred hours. Like um, last year on our three hundred hour, we actually had in uh, a psychologist who specializes in PTSD and an occupational therapist who works within a, a multidisciplinary group with PTSD. And I got them in because so many people wanted to do their research project on yoga and PTSD. Um, and so I got in specialists to, to really tell people what it is like to work with people with PTSD, that it is a very risky think both for the person and for the teacher as well and to really understand it but that there really was a belief or is a belief that yoga helps with PTSD and you know as we go go to yoga journal yoga helps with depression anxiety uh, sciatica 
knee problem. I mean, it's it's almost I've got a screenshot. There's about 22 things that it says yoga for, you know, that you're talking yoga journal like this yeah, supposedly yeah, authoritative yeah, yeah. magazine. So I think yoga teachers are re well, I see that yoga teachers are really, really confused and they come to the trainings confused because they hear this language and they read in yoga journal yoga international you know those big huge huge magazines or i don't know what multimedia magazines now they read these things that is more but yoga is good for ptsd and it's great for depression and it's i why can't i bring that into my class which and then they hear you know your hips are not open flexible enough because you have stored trauma that you know so they this language i suppose in lots of different ways depending on the teacher and the class that that the trainees come and they've heard and they believe i suppose it's so tricky like for all the things that you mentioned because like you said yoga can be good for many of those things but then like jenny and i uh, had paul ingram on a, the podcast I don't know, Jenny, you might know the episode, but talked about yoga for low back pain. And but that it's applicable to any of those things. Yoga in general can be helpful for many of those things. But then and, and so maybe you read it on the yoga journal website and you see that and then you come into yoga teacher training and it's like, well, why can't I why can't I teach a yoga for low back pain class or why can't I teach a yoga for anxiety class? And it's like, well, hold on. Like you just said, well, we brought in experts who work with people with PTSD. This is complicated. This is tricky. Yes. This shouldn't be taken lightly. So to assume that, well, I took a, a 200 hour, I know yoga is good for X. Therefore, I'm going to teach a class where I believe that I'm treating X. Yeah. It's problematic, but it, it's not surprising why yeah. you see it. It's, and it's like, you can teach people who have back pain, but you can't be, but it's all about the way that you do it the narrative, like, like you said, at the beginning, what do yoga teachers do? They teach yoga. And then, and then let that, you know, fall as it may for the person in the room, whatever they're going through, but don't try to make it more than you're qualified to make it. Yeah. And it's, and it's always, I think that the, the, the yoga for the yoga mm -hmm. for anxiety, mm -hmm. the yoga, you can, teach people with depression, with anxiety, with lower back problems, with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yoga does amazing things. Movement does amazing things. Breath work does amazing, or, you know, we know this, but it's, it's working with clients, not patients, clients with them and not being frightened. Oh, you know, they've come in and said, I've got a serious anxiety disorder, but I really want to do the yoga class, teach them. It's okay. So you can teach the person with anxiety, but you don't have to cure the anxiety. It might get helped or it might not get helped, as you know. You know, I, I showed two screenshots from Cochrane Reviews, you know, the big database on movement, because it wasn't a lot of yoga, where it's it's talking about lower back pain, one of the big reviews, probably I think quite recent, 2022, and it's saying that movement, exercise, sorry, exercise shows up that it's really good, but not really good, bad wording, but helpful, low to moderate certainty, you know, as they say, for lower back pain compared to no treatment, um, other uh, uh, 
I don't know, physiotherapy, that kind of thing. I can't remember the exact same thing. And then one that is fibromyalgia, flexibility training, worse for fibromyalgia. You know, and I and I show these two things and say that we we can't tell. We're yoga teachers. If a byproduct of our yoga, you know, with modifications, etc., helps the person with anxiety, low back pain, whatever, fantastic. But it's yes. the, the the two things are very different. I mean, there's there's so many nuances there, but it, it's it's as though yoga teachers really don't believe that what they're doing is good enough anywhere. Mm. Yes, I think it really it. is good enough. I'm absolutely passionate about it, a, a movement in general. It, it, you know, so it's it's almost that that's what I want to get through is what you've learned to do and what you can offer is amazing for people yes. with a whole load of things. And it might not be for some people and it's not in your power to work that out, just be a good yoga teacher. And then, you know, all the byproducts of the teaching yoga. Sorry, that was a very long answer to, I can't even remember the question. That was it. You were on fire. <laughs> yeah. That was, Sorry. That I'm was very long answers. <laughs> Thank you. That was, I think you you laid that out so well, and it just helps because it, it does it does get confusing, and some of this language can be hard to understand the distinction. Like yoga for low back pain is one thing versus uh, a yoga class, and people with low back pain might take it. Like that's kind of two different approaches. And how how are we treating that, and how are we handling that? How is yoga interacting with that? But I think you spoke to that really well and trying to um trying to fine tune how we see those distinctions because it's important um, and then i love how you also talked about how it seems like maybe yoga teachers sometimes maybe one of the reasons that we tend to see a lot of this like stepping outside of our lanes as yoga teachers is because there may be this underlying belief that teaching yoga is not enough and I, I think you that that's really important to speak to. Um, do you feel, Catherine, like if you had yoga teacher trainees kind of express that or seem that that might be what's going on for them? Like, do you feel like that is a tendency? I don't know that I've had anybody use those words. That it's not enough. Those are my words from what I've seen. It it seems to me that there's a dis, there's two things I think going on is that I think yoga teachers or the ones that come to be trained by me are, are really worried about things. They really, really, it's quite interesting. It's, it, they are so worried that they are going to hurt somebody in yoga or that somebody's going to come with a particular problem, which is why they have to ask about injuries. And if they don't ask, then they're going to hurt that person. So there's a, and, and I think I said to Jenny, excuse me before that, you know, in, in the UK and in South Africa, we're not a litigious society. People don't sue each other. No one has insurance. It's like, you know, I mean, it really is pretty much a, not UK a little bit stricter than here, but, but here, if you work in a big gym, yes, you have to have insurance, but otherwise not. And no one cares. Uh, and so, so we, the, their concern isn't coming from, you know, being sued or etc. It's they really, really worry that 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 somehow yoga is inherently dangerous. That they that 
you know, I want to come, people will say to me, I want to come and learn yoga. And I like that you are movement science-based. I like your evidence-based because then I can learn to teach yoga safely. Is what, and I think, oh no, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, and then I have to have a long conversation on the phone and say, okay, this is what my approach is, da 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 da, da and then normally they're fine. But it, it's really like they think the science is going to give them the information to teach safely because yoga is dangerous. So there's there's a big conversation around that, and then on top of that, there's also so yoga is dangerous, and I could hurt you in a yoga class. But then there's it's almost contradictory. Then there's but yoga is so good for so many things. You know, it's mm. good. For That's so good for anxiety. It's good for anxiety, and I'm like. You know, the, these are contradictory <laughs> It's like if you believe that yoga is good for lower back pain, then you really have no worries in a general yoga class where everybody signed off and said, I'm fine. You, you, you know, you're not going to injure. So, I, and I, I don't know where it, I mean, maybe it's the magazines, maybe it's the teachers, maybe it's just the general language. I have a theory. It, it comes from lower back pain and Pilates and all of that core stuff that happened however many years ago. But the language is there of protection and then the, the healing language as well, which is a, a different side of yoga. Um, but I mean, on, I laughed on Sunday, I just did a screenshot for them. Yoga Journal, I think it was yoga for depression and the first picture on the main little thumbnail picture of it is somebody in matsyasana in fish pose with their oh, head oh on yeah the it's like a back and, bend where you're lying back back bend for depression i'm just <laughs> you know where to go <laughs> is it because it's heart opener is it because it's on the blocks on somewhere on your nerve on your neck. I mean, I really genuinely have no, they probably don't know either. Sorry. No, I'm not even apologizing to yoga journal anymore, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, but then a trainee will see pictures like that uh, and go, Oh, well, you know, you know, maybe we can't do wheel pose or I don't know, bridge even because it's dangerous, but fish pose with the block is great for depression. I, 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 what I'm saying is, and again, in my very, very long, boring way, is that it, it's confused. The, it's so confused. The message out there around, which makes scope of practice really interesting, I think, is because of these confused messages, you know? Yeah, so many sensationalist headlines. Yes, clickbait. Definitely. In both directions, right? Yoga is great for this, but yoga will hurt you this way. Yes, and you know what I've got, but I must check if it's still there because it's probably from a couple of years ago. I'm teaching people how to do what Google does in terms of searches, in terms of confirmation bias. Got a screenshot, yoga for osteoporosis. Oh, yoga is good for osteoporosis, and then yoga is bad for osteoporosis. Yes. And the same seven, seven, seven poses come up for both. So they, <laughs> they come with, no. I think this is more in the bad for wins, but there's seven seven poses that come up with it's good for osteoporosis and it also comes up with bad for osteoporosis so i mean poor yoga teacher they've got a clue you know unless they've gone and done a load of research unfortunately and they just want to look after people generally that is that you know it's not a kind of oh i need to be seen as better than it is a real concern to help 
heal or prevent injury. That, that's my impression anyway, from the trainees. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you, uh, and I, it's true. I think that a lot of, a lot of um, some of these tendencies come from just like a genuine care and genuine wanting to like, take care, like you said, take care of people and keep people safe. And that's totally commendable. Like it makes a lot of sense why, why we might think some of these things about a yoga teacher's scope of practice or want to be able to operate in certain domains. Uh, I have a question for you based on something you said a few moments ago, which is that, because I feel like I see this tendency a lot too, but if you have someone call you who's maybe interested in your yoga teacher training and they say, I know that your reputation is that your yoga training is very movement science-based and evidence-based, and therefore that's good because I know that'll help me keep my yoga students safe. Uh, and like I, uh, I, I tend to get that feedback a lot too, because I kind of have that reputation for having kind of a, what anatomy slash biomechanics, movement science based style of yoga. And people will often say just on a superficial level, therefore, I know Jenny's yoga classes are safe. Like they'll say that. And it's, I don't put that message out there, but it's like this interpretation, like, well, if they know movement science, they must know how to keep me safe. It's like those people met, mesh the two together. So I guess I'm wondering, Catherine, if, if like I was on the phone as a yoga teacher training uh, interested student and I was like, hey, your training will teach me how to keep everyone safe more than these other ones that are not movement science based. Is I know it's such a big complex topic, but you do say something to them on the phone to try to like change their mind or help them see that more clearly. Like, what would you what would you say to me if that's what I said? Like your training is going to help me keep people safe. <laughs> It really, it really depends on how they come at the question. And it also depends, strangely enough, if they're a health professional, because I get a lot of physios, biokinetics here, which are exercise specialists and G doctors, GP. So it depends on which one it is. But, but as a rule, I will say, yes, I am movement science-based, evidence-based. Um, and, and I explain what we teach. So I don't turn around and say, Oh, no way. I'm not going to teach you how to keep people safe. <laughs> you know, right. it's going to be dangerous. Nonsense. It's, you know, it's a, you know, I, and I talk about how we approach offering different modifications for people within a yoga class setting and how we look at that. And I, I talk about it from the trainees point of view, as in, um, how are we going to teach them different poses at, for their individual body? And then I talk about how that then translates. They start to learn about that and how we can learn about things like progressive overload and pain science. And we can do a whole lot, depending. I mean, I might not even say pain science. It really depends on who you've talked to. But progressive overload, I use different words, regress things and progress things, et cetera, et cetera. So I talk from what I'm going to teach them, but keep it as simple as possible um, and i can't really you can't say i'm not going to keep people safe you know it's just right right <laughs> i mean you just can't. i mean the end you know the intention is it's much more about learning how to teach yoga in a progressive way for me so using movement science principles like progressive overload you know it's a simple example i would give them is uh, you know when you learn chaturanga in a class like normally the teacher just says okay chaturanga and then you kind of collapse into it and then downward dog we do a lot with our arms and stuff and then i said what we teach is how to build up to chaturanga how to build up these things to make your arms strong so that you are able to confidently hold yoga poses that use your arms so it's uh, it's more 
like that. That's how I would explain it. Basically, progressive overload, but in a in a, a very you know we build up strength and flexibility and your skill for poses talking to the trainee and we teach you how to do that within a yoga class a yoga sequence and to be able to read your people to a certain degree is that's the language um but fairly vague because they're big words for you know it's jargon mostly for 200 hour trainees who are calling that makes so much sense thank you for kind of outlining that it's like yeah, this question of safety in yoga, it's, I mean, when, what you were talking about earlier in this episode, in your experience, kind of in the yoga world, in the, as Travis called it, the pre-DVD days, it seemed like there was, you were picking up a lot of, and I know this is still totally the, the prevalent working model today, but a lot of language around alignment is what we use in yoga to keep everyone safe. And because we believe that alignment is what assures safety, that's like why alignment is so important. And that's why you have so many yoga styles that are alignment based. But it sounds to me like you kind of present a different model of safety, which has less to do with like specific and nitty gritty alignment being correct or incorrect. Maybe more is about like just building, like you said, strength and capacity over time with a great working knowledge of what it means to regress and progress movements so that so that students can be taught because when they build strength over time, they naturally will become more resilient and you know, injuries a really big, complex topic, I know. But when we build strength, that can help can help prevent injury to an extent. So that kind of work just it's like this. It's like a different model, right? Wouldn't you say like or a different paradigm for working with the body when you teach yoga that way? I think so compared to the way I see it being taught, which is, you know, mm -hmm. very much about nocebo cueing, you know, your postures, you've got an overarched lump, lower back, don't because you're going to get back problems, knee over ankle, you know, all the all the things keep your shoulders down, all of the, that language around that. It, it's a very much I always think of it, it. I always use chaturanga. I always think it's a great example. And if you do general Google searches on it, it's like, don't do chaturanga this way. Don't flare your elbows out. Don't. And then, you know, it's first of all, those are all incorrect. You can have your elbows out. We know that. But <laughs> it's like, it's all very well to say that. But if you don't have the strength to hold the position in the first place, you can't do the, the tick because you just can't. You collapse to the ground, you know. So it, it's, it's just, and I, feel like yoga is very much frequently not all the time taught in that kind of don't way you know don't uh, you know have an overarched spine don't have your shoulders down don't have your knee over your ankle etc etc it's very much but you know your shoulders will injure in chaturanga so don't have them that rather than a well okay that's fine but how how do i do the other you know how do i have the strength for chaturanga or to hold a downward dog where my shoulders feel comfortable or you know my wrists in all the arm balances and planks and things that we do you know how do i get wrists and i know we can't always do it with progressive overload but how how do my wrists, wrists get used to this you know what what movement science principles can i put into a class that over time may help with those things it might not but at least there's some thought going on behind it rather than well just don't do it you know <laughs> that kind of thing. 
totally like the big red x just like avoid yeah. the movement entirely versus there yeah. being a more positive way we could approach it which is like you could build up to that movement and it's just like a bigger picture thing a bigger you know use the example with chaturanga sorry of going you know if you went to a, a fitness trainer a person training you said i would really like to learn how to do push-ups they're not going to make you do a whole load of push-ups that you can't do and then say don't do that <laughs> it's like well you can't do it and you set your shoulders a little bit forced no we're not just not going to go anywhere near they're going to go okay and we asked the 200 so what would they do and they go well you could do a push-up against the wall and the push-up on the chair and they'd learn negatives eccentric work you know there's there's just very normal accepted techniques that you can build it rather than the don't do it because it's dangerous i suppose is the the message that often it's out there, you know? Yeah. That, thank you for explaining that. Right. So it just seems like often, I think you can attest to this too, but in the, uh, in the yoga world, sometimes because the yoga world tends to be, and this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, tends to be kind of an insular place where a lot of yoga teacher trainings will teach yoga teachers and then they go on to teach yoga teachers mm -hmm. and it just all stays within the yoga world. It seems rare that they're like less common that there are people like like you, Catherine, who step outside of the yoga world to learn from outside, like from exercise science, from the fitness world, from just other movement modalities. But when you take a step out, you realize there are actually all these really clear and like easy to understand and apply regression, like easy in the sense that like just lift up a push up, like elevate your hands. It's not yes. that hard, you know, but in the yoga world, for some reason, I think because we don't we often don't step outside and look to other movement modalities to inform us. We just see there's chaturanga and that's a problem. Like maybe we see it that way, but we don't see these other bigger picture solutions. Yes. I think so. That is, that definitely is right. And it's amazing. There's just like so many really simple exercise principles that can, can perhaps be helpful, you know, for, for us as yoga teachers. To, and it, and it's quite easy to teach trainees on a 200 hour level. Well, okay. You know, my right knee hurts in Skandasana. What are you going to offer the person if you have time and you're not teaching 40 people in a class? You know what? And it's, I mean, it's always the same thing. Reduce load, reduce range of motion, reduce um, repetition, reduce, you know, the time held, the duration. You know, there's, there's relatively easy ways of just going, oh, and not going, don't do it. You know, that's poor 200 hours. They're not allowed to say that. <laughs> don't do it. They have to come up with, well, how, do, how can you regress it and then progress it again to get, because the person with the wrist things wants to do a downward dog. They don't want to be told, no, they've got to do forearm plank, you know, for the rest of their life. There's a way that you can, or they can at home as well, with the help of a health professional, you know, it, it actually start to load wrists, shoulders, et cetera, whatever the case is there. People want to do the thing if possible. They don't want to be stuck like either doing nothing or regressed, you know? So, and I don't think it's, I really don't think it's, it's not all the 200 hours we teach get it, you know, it's really quick. They, you know, they get it after learning things that, oh, I, I can do this, you know? And so, you know, and you can do it once you've learned to teach and had experience, you can do it fairly quickly in a class. It's like up, you come a bit, you know, reduce it, knees on the floor. I mean, it's, you know, reduce the levers, bring it back. It, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's that you can do it. 
Yeah. And you can learn to integrate uh, working with people that way, even in the context of a group yoga class, which is, which I know your yoga teacher trainings really empower people with those type of tools. Um, it just sounds like a much more positive uh, and less discouraging approach to help show people what they actually can do rather than just putting a bunch of red X's on everything. Mm. I hope so. Yes. But I do have another question. I feel that what you've been describing is really, really helpful in terms of like looking at position, different position, different alignments, position and alignment are kind of um, synonyms, like mean the same thing. And looking at how we might manipulate position and alignment to help um, yoga students find versions of yoga poses that meet them where they're at. So that's like one way of working with alignment or position or posture, we might say. But I'm wondering, Catherine, if you tend to, if you see out there in the yoga world or in the beliefs that some of your teacher trainees come in with, uh, do you see a tendency for yoga teachers to work with posture or alignment in a different way that may be kind of like stepping outside of their scope or stepping out of their lane, which, you know, like the idea of um, this is maybe a little, a little not so much even within a specific yoga pose, but just yoga teachers looking at students' posture in general and maybe analyzing it, maybe making comments about it, uh, predictions about what it might lead to or what they need to do to correct it. Do you see those kinds of tendencies in yoga teachers? And do you think that's an example of uh, outside of a yoga teacher scope of practice to be like correcting, like, I mean, kind of like standing day-to-day -day posture, like that kind of stuff? I I, I used to do it. <laughs> I, I'm being very, I mean, when I said, like yeah. I, I, my, one of my main teachers, well, she is my main teacher, Laura Norton at the moment. When I first started teaching her, she's the most archy, anterior, tilty, backbending <laughs> yoga teacher and I spent most of the yoga classes yelling at her because I was I was she's an Iyengar teacher as well you go Laura stop arching your back Laura stop it I mean that's what right. I used to do back in 2000 I don't know nine or whatever it was it's I in my brain that this overarched back bendy ballet dancer kind of thing was wrong and i can't honestly remember if it was because i thought she was going to get back pain or it was just a an ayenga that we don't want that look so i'm not sure but i used to do it myself and um you know at it, and I've seen lots of other teachers talk, you know, talk about not so much the trainees, but they do believe that if you have that type of, you know, the classic anterior tilted pelvis posture, then that is a problem for back pain and that preferably you have to reduce that to neutral spine and then keep yeah, that neutral, neutral spine entire way through your yoga <laughs> your yoga practice um even though you're doing wheel pose or forward bend <laughs> or whatever <laughs> maintain it somehow it's a, you, you know it's it's a real thing it's a i had a, a totally the opposite posture thing one of my 300 hours a couple of years ago she was on she didn't do a 200 hour with us because we get way over half that haven't and she phoned me a couple of weeks into the course and she said i have to leave the course and i why and she said because she got taught to posterior tilt in every single pose and now i'm saying you can do whatever your spine does it's fine and she couldn't take it she, she and i i had to sit down and say but look this is how the spine goes and that but it was mind-blowing to her because of this belief she had she was taught 200 hours by a pilates 
teacher who, and, and it was a while ago, so, you know, it was very much that posterior tilted uh, pelvis was good for lower back. So she really believed that that just wherever possible, that had to be tight. And, and it, it's it's the same as all the other conversations we've had. It's, it's in the language out there, that day-to-day -day language, forget about even yoga. It's, it, it's, oh, you know, you're on your cell phone, therefore you're going to get stuck like that forever and your neck's going to hurt. And the same posture, all, all of those things. And people just, they, it's the language of the day, I think, really. You know, it, it's a, people come with that and don't really understand, you know, like we talk about how wonderful the spine is and, you know, and how many ways we do move it compared to a lot of other um exercise out of there we move it you know rotate twisting and back bending and forward bending and lateral side and this is good this is a you know pelvis tilts in all sorts of ways but that language around posture is it a belief system that if you've got it's sometimes it gets very confused as to whether it's anterior tilt or posterior tilt, whichever one's bad for what but there's a bit <laughs> bad. it's bad that somehow a that yoga teachers can see what a neutral spine is which we know you can't yes. you know yes. you just can't and then and then if people aren't in neutral spine that they will they will get back pain you know that's it's like a real affirmed belief solid belief that it honestly takes quite a long time to and i don't know if i shift everybody in, in all honesty you know yeah. Because it's so like, oh, I can't let that go because everybody's saying that. Like everybody, my doctors told me that, my physios told me. It's in the newspapers, it's on social media, it's on, you know, and then there's me going, well, mm, no, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You know, so it's... It, well, it's there's really you and your research skills, like, you know, there's that part of it. Is that and and I mean it does shift a lot of people, but some it doesn't. And I think also for from a fear based perspective, they think well, you know. But if I don't do that, then it's it's better just to do it just in case because then yeah, yeah. maybe someone will injure. So I'm just going to do it anyway, you know. And so it's almost like they you know, erring on the side of safety rather just do it and ignore know kind of what Catherine's saying is true but ah, there's no harm in it anyway you know that that kind of thing you know no that's like it's just easier to kind of default to it because they already know it and maybe they're like maybe this isn't necessary but i'm just gonna do it anyway but maybe that's not taking a step back to appreciate how actually teaching yoga in that way that's very kind of controlly and correcting posture uh, may act may actually have some negative, like it might not just be totally innocuous. It actually could be non-optimal when we take a step back and look at things like the biopsychosocial model of pain and how um, so much more influences whether we have pain in our body than just alignment and the tissues, but like psychology, beliefs, what people tell us, what we pick up from. So it's just like so so much goes into all of that. So. It's fascinating with the differences in the language. So there's the anterior tilt, but with emphasis on like an extreme lung extreme. What people are seeing is the extreme lumbar arch being dangerous for back pain. But then the other thing, and we struggle with this one to 
to get it out of people's mouths, even by the end of the 200 hour, is this wanting people to be in a neutral spine when yes. they forward bend. Uh, it's like to keep <laughs> oh, the yes. Right. So, so it's like the back is moving in a totally different way to the arch way, which is also dangerous. And then, so lumbar flexion go for, and, and and Laura, who's the main person, will go. Your spine rounds when you fold forward. It is okay. And then I'll come in and do the anatomy of it, and we go. And then we'll see them teaching, doing their teaching practice at the end, using terminology that it is make sure you keep the spine lengthened make sure you keep a straight line. and it and it you know and then i'm laura they're saying it again and then we talked about this last week and, and she's like oh, i haven't said it and i said i know you haven't you know it, it's language that they're hearing out there that is so ingrained of you know forward bending is dangerous for like daily life, pick, never pick anything up when you forward bend. You know, all of this language plus yoga is dangerous. And then the your overarched back is also causing you a back problem. So neutral is like the way to go. <laughs> Which, you know, and then I tried to explain, say, we can't do a yoga practice. Like, A, yeah. we don't know what it is, but they get confused with that. But we can't do the yoga practice unless we round our spine and twist it and go backwards and and let's make that strong you know yes. it, let's work with that rather but but it's really is a, that this that one is a classic for it's now i think more prevalent than the the lumbar arch anterior tilt thing this watching that your spine isn't overtly flexed in in spinal flexion when you hold forward yeah, and we actually did a whole podcast episode, Travis, with Dr. Sam Spinelli about, and the title is, uh, mm -hmm. is rounding your low back dangerous? I think that's what it is. And, and Sam talked about the actual research on when you forward bend, uh, the lumbar spine, you can't avoid it. The lumbar spine does round, it flexes. Like the, the eye, mm -hmm. the naked eye might not see it, but at a actual vertebral level in the spine, it is happening. So it's, it's just unavoidable. It. It's like, it's a normal movement of the spine. What's the point in making people afraid of it? Like, uh, of course, just this uh, disclaimer that they're always individuals and people can present with different pain patterns. And so for someone who, when they fold forward, if they do experience some pain sensitivity, then in that individual case, maybe they would want to back off and, you know, work like it's, it's, there could be individual cases and that ideally that would be just a temporary time until it calms down again. Then they start to introduce the movement back in. But so just to say, you know, things get things can be like individualized for a specific person with specific painful issues Complete. going on. But but on the whole, when we're talking about just like the inherent properties of these movements being dangerous or likely to cause pain, it just it seems that um, research really doesn't support so many of the common claims that we hear anyway. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, I like beyond the fact that saying things like that, you need to keep a neutral spine in order to stay safe that doesn't seem to be supported by research. Like that seems wrong. And even in physiotherapy and physical therapy worlds where we also hear those same messages, it's also not supported by science. So there's the fact that that's just not correct. But then there's the fact, there's the question of, well, is it even within a yoga teacher scope to be saying, talking about that either way, you know, like cautioning yes. people about their posture. I, I wonder too, like Catherine, with the students, when you, when you point those things out, are they confused? Cause then they're like, well, what am I supposed to say? I feel like I like they're saying, they feel like they have to say something. Right. 
And then you tell them, well, we, we really can't say that. And they're like, what am I supposed to say? So Jenny and I often say like, don't say anything at all. Don't say <laughs> anything at all. It's something we really teach is that you can be quiet in a, but yes. especially for new teachers, wow, it's a challenge because it's that room is just deafeningly quiet for those three seconds that you haven't spoken and then oh, but I want to you know or they speed up and they say yes I do think it's filling space and it just it just comes out uh, you know it really it's not taught by us and it's 200 hours later and it just comes out I think and I think you're absolutely right Travis it comes out because obviously they've heard that a lot in life mm -hmm. and there's that absolutely have to say something uh, it cannot be quiet for a while it's too scary i think to be quiet we try to teach them that actually forward bends is a great time for you to be quiet and quickly check your notes <laughs> because people can't, perfect yeah you know it's a teaching trick you know it's like so quickly check your notes you know it's I love a, that. yeah it's a it's, you know it's a, anything that you can't you know where somebody can't see you is the greatest time as a new teacher to go, oh, crap i can't remember what i'm doing next you know that kind of but i do i think i think you're absolutely right it's filling space and again like just trying to make sure everyone's like safe and controlling the safety of the person in front of you right like can you really truly control that and is mm. is pain and injury something that's just much more complex than any any one thing that a yoga teacher could like dictator control <laughs> completely not yes yeah um Ka Catherine we did before we like start to wrap up here we uh we wanted to make sure that our listeners know like how they can study with you and like what your offerings are uh in general and that although you're based in Cape Town South Africa uh you actually offer your trainings online so anyone anywhere can study with you so I wonder if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and also a couple questions about like some specific modules teacher training modules that you offer uh where like just I'm not asking the best and most specific question, but like how, like there's some topics that you offer like back hair yoga and yin yoga training. These were some that we had connected about before where those topics could be taught in a way that may not be so like evidence-based or supported, but that you really go out of your way to treat these topics in a way that, that really kind of honors the science and what a yoga teacher's scope actually is. So could you maybe just speak to like a couple of these offerings and then just, largely let people know about like what you offer in terms of teacher training and that they can study with you yeah and um, so we we're doing two things we are speaking for people in the states and so we, we get a lot of people from europe so that but we're in the same time zone as europe so we offer our train the big trainings 200 hour 300 500 hour we offer them online and in person at the same time so it's quite easy to come and we and i would say they're 50 50 especially the 300 hour because we get so many people from overseas on those but what we're also doing at the moment is we're setting up a uk a united kingdom side of wellness connection and we're going to offer more self-paced and online courses there as well so um it won't make any difference unfortunately to the states except there will be self-paced courses that will be offered i'm hoping to get it all up and running by september but i'll send you the website the website will be up and running i think in two weeks so i'll send you details on that and then on top of that we offer 
loads of short courses. Um, we, we offer uh, yin, pregnancy, aerial, I mean, you name it, Hot 26, all of those courses, kids, back care, all of those things, and all of them are taught from an evidence-based point of view. Uh, so um, as I mentioned to you, Jenny, for example, with the yin course, because yin has a, a, a big mix of Chinese medicine and things like that, and that teachers, I haven't done a yin course myself, so don't quote me on yin. I really haven't done one, even with my own teacher. So, so my yin teacher, Taryn James, she's an occupational health therapist. She's the most geeky science person I know besides me and you too. <laughs> I mean, she really it is just in terms of the yoga world, Travis, because I know you are too. But um, so she talks about the Chinese medicine beliefs around yin and she talks about meridians, but she presents them and she says she calls them the fluff around it. Ah, so the she talks about it because, but it, she means it in a nice way. And she says, you know, well, you can use meridians for imagery. You can use, you know, the line of the body. And again, I'm, don't quote me on this because I really don't know anything about meridians. But, you know, she said you could do it. And then she teaches all the science about the movements of the poses, what they're doing, how you look for people and all the stuff that we would normally do. She she's also a lead teacher on the 500 hours. So it's almost a different way of packaging it. And for the back care, the, it's again, it's 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 back care for people with back problems. So it's so the yoga always get huge problems especially on the 500 hour and it's a very specialized area in terms of the fact that only a few people are that interested in taking it further in really understanding what's going on with the back in order that they are comfortable with somebody coming in and saying i've had a disc herniation i've got spondylolisthesis i've got da, 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 and being comfortable with oh, brilliant come in do the yoga class and i know how to work with you, not cure you. If you feel, and this is the thing, this is the, the pain science thing as well in a very simplistic term. It's, a, it's like I say to t teachers, the person's gone onto their mind body app, booked a class with you, got into their car or caught a bus or whatever, come to your yoga class with something, teach them. You know, and it's a, because the value of, you know, if the person's come in pain, the, it, look, you not, might not cure the pain, might even make it worse, but that's not your responsibility. But what you're offering them is the person wants to move. They want to do yoga. They want to probably be with other people in the room. Maybe they want a bit of a laugh and a bit of an engagement with you or, or students as a teacher, because that's warm and friendly and community and all the good stuff that we know maybe it's always a maybe right can help with pain yes. you know yes. in a thing so so that's the power that you have and then on top of it if you don't freak out when they say they've had a disc herniation a couple of months ago that will also help and that you don't yeah. have to nocebo cue them you know like oh, be careful oh you're going into an arch oh be careful you know because you are worried about it so so it's more that kind of thing you know it it, it, it so the courses into well the back care course is more from that perspective of things it's not to be frightened of it and also to work with health professionals who sometimes can be good and sometimes not but it's you know it's work and understand if 
because we get a lot of letters from physios or whatever saying this person's got this duh, 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 don't do that don't do this duh, duh. And, and most of the teachers don't understand the language etc so it's it's about that but it's a very niche course for people that are really interested in that uh, just having they they all normally teach a different style of yoga hatha yoga more prop yoga anyway and they kind of all, all, often work with elderly people in retirement homes, that sort of thing. I hope that's clear. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that's really helpful just to also just to give people a sense of how they like maybe in someone, maybe someone has a yoga teacher training program they run. This is helpful for them to get some ideas for how they might, you know, incorporate themes like like back hair or low back pain or or how they might treat like um styles of yoga that come with like tradition and belief, a belief system attached, how they might still honor the belief system, but maybe treat within or teach uh, the broader subject within an evidence-based framework. So that's helpful for people just to get ideas for how they, how we still can completely support and honor the whole complete yoga practice, but also from an evidence-based perspective. And it's also helpful because people realize that they can study and learn with you and your program and the awesome, you are a lead teacher in your teacher training programs, but you also have other really wonderful and well-trained uh, well teachers who teach with you. And like the yin yoga training is taught by Taryn, I think you said her name is. So people should just know that they can find you and follow you. And uh, we'll put links to all of your resources in the show notes. But would you say, Catherine, if you want to throw out like one or two places that would be the best if someone right now wants to go follow you, like where can they find you? Uh, probably Instagram. Um, yeah, at Wellness Con oh, it's not. Yeah, at Wellness Connection Yoga. That's the easiest to do. And then the link for the trainings are in the bio at the top of it. And yeah, and the website is just teacher training. We don't do anything else at all. We just do teach, we specialize. It's kind of like, like, I like it like a mini yoga university sort of thing. So yeah, so that's probably the best way to describe us, I think. That is perfect. And that's really simple. Then people, people know where to go. Um, well, with all of that, Catherine, I feel like you answered our question so thoroughly and wonderfully and really presented such a great framework and way that we might approach this wonderful practice of yoga that we have on our hands. Travis, did you have any, any last questions? I, I think, I mean, I have so many more questions that I think <laughs> that we'll have to get Catherine on again. Yes. Um, but I just want to reiterate like how, how awesome it was to hear your perspective on this. Um, and I, I think there were just so many knowledge bombs in there. And I, I appreciate your unfiltered, <laughs> you know, you're not, like you said, you're not afraid to tell it like it is. And I think that's really important uh, yeah. for having this conversation. So thank you. Thank you both for having me. And as you know, I wish I lived down the road because I've just got so many questions of my own on so many different topics. But thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Yay. Thank you, Catherine. We appreciate you. And that wraps up our look at a yoga teacher's scope of practice. Remember that you can support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter. 
And lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.